You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Well, hello, Maurice. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, Maurice, for those that haven't come across you online, uh, introduce yourself and tell the listeners why we're talking tonight. My name is Maurice Shaw. I am a pharmacist, but I'm also a comedian. I love to do stand-up comedy. I perform all over the Midwest at major clubs such as Zany's, uh, Laugh Factory Chicago. Um, I also work for a company called Funny Business. I also have a YouTube channel that has uh, over millions of views called RX Comedy, where I talk about the profession of pharmacy and what it's like. I also try to do a little um, advocating on behalf of the profession as well through comedy and humor to try to get the word out about kind of the terrible working conditions in retail and just to just show other people what it's really like in the pharmacy. You know, there's a lot of pharmacy groups and forums and where they talk about pharmacy issues, but everybody in the groups of forums, they're pharmacists or pharmacy technicians. So they, yeah. they understand it's kind of speaking to the choir where right. I have a lot of people who follow me that aren't pharmacists or pharmacy technicians. And so they're always kind of shocked about my videos or, um, you know, what I say on stage. Even my neighbor came up to me the other day and was like, I came across your channel and, <laughs> and I didn't even realize pharmacy was that terrible. So That's funny. Tell me about your first stand-up gig. Well, my first stand-up gig ever, it was a little bit different. It wasn't pharmacy-oriented. I was doing what your typical t- comic does, doing drunk jokes and, yeah. and other jokes like that. And then one day I was uh, getting ready for a show. And the older comic, uh, Mel Novis, he used to be a writer for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, he goes, are those your notes? Because I was looking at these note cards. And I was like, oh, no, those aren't my notes for my set. I have a, a pharmacy exam tomorrow. And he's <laughs> like, what? I was like, yeah. I was like, I'm in pharmacy school. I got an exam tomorrow uh, or dialysis. And he was like, well, why don't you go up there and tell jokes about that? Nobody cares about the other stuff that you talk about because he's seen my other set. <laughs> <laughs> He saw he saw him, so he was he was trying to give you some advice. <laughs> yeah, you know, for somebody, uh, he used to have a TV show on the Chicago Television Network that they actually just brought back. Uh, and you know, like I said, he was a writer for the Tribune, so he's like, you know, you got to create your own um, lane, so to speak, in, in comedy. And so that's when I really started to just write jokes about pharmacy and my experience, and then it kind of just took off from there. How'd you finally get up there? Well, people my whole life have told me that I, I'm funny. Even my teacher's like, he's a great student, but he's always trying to be a class clown and stuff like that. And so I decided one day they have these open mics. They have them all over the country. You know, you just have to look for them. But you just go there. And I went there, did an open mic. And, you know, it's really a supportive type of thing because all comics know that you're just trying. So even if your joke's really not that funny, they laugh. <laughs> So it gives you this false sense of humor that you're really funny, but you're not. <laughs> but then I started to do, you know, a few shows here and there. And then, like I said, Mel, he told me to do the pharmacy stuff. And I maybe had like four or five minutes of pharmacy material. And people were always say to me, I liked your, your bit about the pharmacy, but they didn't like my other bits. So I just <laughs> slowly kept growing, getting growing. You know, comedy is all about experiences. So it just sometimes it takes a time. It takes time because you have to keep working and different patient encounters. And finally, I had enough material where I had 30, 45 minutes. And that's when a lot of the bigger comedy clubs started to take me serious and let me perform. So, so Maurice, you hear about the um, 
singers. You know, they're getting up and they're singing Billy Joel's singing just the way you are for the 30,000th time and so on. Tell me your feeling about the joy in stand-up telling a joke that you've told multiple times. Is there a lot of joy in that still and why? Um, Yeah, it's a lot of joy. A lot of times people don't notice it, but my mom, she's been to a lot of shows. And she's like, you told that joke before. But what people don't realize in comedy and stand-up, sometimes you always are tweaking a joke. Sometimes I've had jokes that didn't go as well as I thought. And then one time I tweaked when I did the punchline or I yeah. set it up a little bit different so it's the same joke. So it's you're always really tweaking your jokes to make them better. Uh, at least for me, I, I'm no Jerry Seinfeld yet. So every time I go up there, I know the joke will hit, at least the punchline, but I try to tweak it a little bit. So it's just, you know, you worked on something and when you go on stage one, it's it's kind of rewarding because people don't know what it's like when you're in front of 450 people and they're staring at you and you're on stage. So it, the lights are in your face and you just see all these faces. And especially when you first go up there, it's this type of quietness where you, I, I swear you could hear every organ in your body just working and moving. And so when you tell a joke and you could see, you know, people's face and how they react and just after the show, people saying like, hey, my dad's a pharmacist. Oh, my God. He loved you so much. How many times people are taking pictures with to say how much they loved, especially the the people who are in the pharmacy fields. There's a lot of te- pharmacy technicians that come to my show and just kind of their facial expressions. And they want and the fact that people actually want to take pictures with me is just kind of makes you want to keep doing it over and over and over. And plus, it, like I said, it gets out the message. I've had people say, I'm going to treat my pharmacist better. It's easier to go to a convention and do pharmacy jokes because they get it. But that was the hard part for me. It was like, how can I make this funny? Where Because I don't have a whole lot of time. You know, when you're on stage, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 goes by quickly. Probably flies. Yeah, so you can't, you know, spend all your time trying to explain um, pharmacy. So getting it to a point where everybody can understand it, that just makes it just amazing. And then the people, they can relate and see how pharmacy is a little bit stressful. And, you know, we do more than take pills from a big bottle and stick it in a little bottle. So that's what really keeps me going is just that, you know, one, the people that work in the pharmacy love the fact that I'm telling kind of their story for them, telling everybody how stressful pharmacy is. A lot of people are scared to talk or say something. People are like, I'm so scared to like your post, but I love it. I was like, what type of world do we live in that you're scared to hit like on something? It was interesting you said that when you know a joke is going to hit, the pressure is gone, and then you can work on the finesse of it, the little bit of timing. It's got to be satisfying to know when it's going to hit, that you can then relax and and work on the other finesse a little bit. And I liked your bit about the big bottle, little bottle. I saw that today <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> on one of your posts. That was so true. You mentioned the different audiences. So how much of... What is what? Like, are you doing half of shows where you have no idea the profession and then the other half are like at pharmacy conventions or meetings or something? Or what's the what's the split on that? It just kind of just depends. The ones like where I did the Virginia Pharmacists Association, they wanted me to kind of talk about things I was doing outside of pharmacy, but incorporate humor. So that it's you know everybody's a pharmacist so it's just not all comedy it's kind of like telling your story and i throw little bits of comedy in there as i'm telling the story when i do a comedy club i have no clue like i had some some one show 
where like 10 of the people were pharmacy people and four of them drove all the way from Michigan to see me. So sometimes it could be more pharmacy people if, you know, I post it or it's a big enough club, people can come out. But most of the times it's just random random people but sometimes you're doing your show not just like you said with virginia like telling a story but sometimes you're doing your show in front of an actual pharmacy group yeah yeah yeah, like sometimes i'm doing it in front of a pharmacy group most of the times though it's just at a comedy club but the, the great thing about that is that you know everybody uses a pharmacy at some point in their life. They always tell me, you know, I remember the one time I went to the pharmacy when they're younger because they don't go that much. If they're older, go, every time I pick up my medicine, my pharmacist is running around. So it's like, you know, the pharmacy is something that connects everybody because at least at one point in time, you had to pick up a script. Yeah, that's true. Everybody has been to the pharmacy. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. So you've been doing this for how long now? I'd probably say between seven and ten years. You know, I had to stop when I did my residency for a little bit. And there's times where, you know, if I had so much work or stuff that I stopped doing it just because life got a little bit hectic. You know, pharmacy is funny because I was in Chicago. I was always going to the open mics at the big comedy club, Zany's Laugh Factory. And that's like where that you know, the amateurs can try to get on stage and they were like, we think you're funny, but you don't do it enough because they're big on like, you got to hit the stage every night. But I was like, I'm a pharmacist. I can't just go to comedy clubs every night. So then I actually left and ended up moving to Springfield, Illinois. And then when I moved to Springfield, Illinois, Zanies and Laugh Factory was like, hey, we want you to perform. I'm like, well, now I live three hours away. <laughs> so, well, Why do they want you to do it every night? Is it so you get really comfortable? You no, know, it's just kind of just how the comedy clubs are. It's just kind of uh, they just feel like you're a true comic when you're performing every night. You're not a true comic if you're not working every night. That means you're, you're not working hard enough. So but, you know, I tried to explain to them that I'm a pharmacist. I can't just, I don't work at a t-shirt shop where I'm free every every night. But that's just kind of just the culture of comedy. Whoever does the most shows, how the comedy clubs look at it, they let those people kind of go on stage. It's kind of like your report card. It's like, hey, I've worked the last 20 weekends. So they're like, oh, okay, people are hiring you. You must be good because people are bringing you back. All right, we'll trust it. Yeah. So looking at your LinkedIn, Maurice, I see your pharmacy work stopping in January of 2020. That was when I was uh, let go by Walgreens in January. And after that, it took me a while to find another job. I actually got a job at a hospital, but then I ended up getting furloughed because of Corona. And, you know, they were losing so much money due to because they weren't having those elective surgeries. So then I finally um, got hired by CVS. So I've been working for CVS probably three, four months. And now I have a a pretty soon a work from home desk pharmacist state job working for Medicaid because they saw my Z-Dog video. So quite a few people have reached out to me about positions. Because of your Z-Dog video. Yeah. And uh, I didn't even realize how well I knew he was well known because I've seen his parodies. But it was like people were reaching out to me, pharmacists from Australia and all these other countries were reaching out to me and they were just, they're kind of interested in how pharmacy is in America because they always say that's what's coming over there. Like in Australia, once we were starting to do immunizations and they started doing immunizations and 
they couldn't even fathom the amount of flu shots and prescriptions that we have to do here in in America. You know, they they got a lot of overlap. They'll be they, the lady said that in Australia it's probably like three to four hundred scripts, but they'll have like three pharmacists a day. Hmm. And I was like, uh, I sometimes I feel like I've done you know we've done seven hundred, eight hundred scripts, and there's you know only two pharmacists. You're only overlapping for an hour, so wow. They said it's starting to change over there too, where they're starting to cut back. So, are you able to share a little bit about that story with Walgreens cutting you? Yeah, I could share a little bit about it. I was intrigued when I saw that. In fact, I think it was on Z Dog Show maybe that he had mentioned that in his title on YouTube. So, what happened there? Uh, well, I've been working for Walgreens for seven years, and I've been doing comedy the whole time. You know that I, I had worked there. I've probably been doing it for 10 years. Even the district manager that hired me, she knew I did comedy because she knew me from when I was in pharmacy school. And even when we had corporate meetings, you know, if I if I did a presentation or something or I spoke, you know, they would introduce me as, oh, he's a pharmacist and he's also a comedian. So everybody knew. I had people higher than district managers come to my show, you know, seen the full set, took pictures afterwards and Loved it, and it was kind of like that, uh, especially with my YouTube channel. Like every time I did a transfer, it was always like, "Oh, you're the YouTube guy. Oh, you're the YouTube guy," and stuff. All right, so what happened then? Eight years later, then what happens? Uh, well, I get a new district manager, and um, he kind of comes in. My store manager, he ended up leaving shortly after we found out we weren't getting our bonuses. You know, when I first took over that store, that was my probably my fourth store that I've taken over. And uh, when I took it over, everything was in the red. It was underperforming. And a goal me and him set out was like, hey, in a year and a half, let's get this store because it's such a high volume. It's a big bonus for us. You know, I believe I could have got like 16,000 or something like that. But we hit all the metrics. So we were excited. And then we just found out like a week or two before, oh, they're not giving bonuses anymore. And so it was like, okay. So, you know, my store manager, he left. They brought in a new manager. Then my district manager one day uh, calls me in the office and is like, hey, your comedy is a gross misconduct. And I was like, well, you know, everybody knew that I did comedy. People from corporate knew I did comedy. A week before, corporate actually sent me an email. It was for a position working for uh, Walgreens in Deerfield, Illinois. It was a corporate position, promotion, uh, like manager of pharmacy and retail ops. So, you know, I was actually kind of excited because I was like, hey, I might get a position at headquarters. Actually, three months before that, they tried to promote me. One was like a healthcare supervisor, but it was in Nebraska. But I wasn't about to move out of Nebraska. Another one was a special position. So I was actually kind of shocked when he called me in because I was like, <laughs> corporate is about to, you know, a week ago was emailing me about this special position. And he just said my comment was gross misconduct. And it was one of those things where, like, you're kind of shocked. You don't know what to say. Like, You probably thought he was joking almost. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I I don't really think that it's for comedy. But it's it's one of those things where it's like, well, no matter what I say at this moment, it seemed like it wasn't going to change the outcome. So I really didn't even say anything. I just said, okay, okay. You know, when he's telling me that it's gross misconduct and that I got to turn in my keys and go take my license down. You know, for a while, I couldn't get a position because I had a couple of interviews, but they would look at my resume and they would say, wow, you know, the people that I spoke to said you were an amazing pharmacist. And I look at your resume, like what were you bashing the company? Like what was going on? And so, you know, a lot of people said, you know, we'd love to hire you, but 
based off of what happened, it's really, you know, I'm a little hesitant. You couldn't explain anything like, oh, I told this joke about Walgreens or I did this. You're like dumbfounded. You don't even know how to explain it. So you can't really defend yourself. You know, even when I eventually got hired at CVS, you know, I told the district manager there, I said, everything that I have up is what's been up. You can look at it. This is where it is. And he's like, I don't see anything on there that's grounds for gross misconduct. So, you know, they ended up giving me a job. But, you know, it took a while. So that's why I started making videos to, to basically kind of fix my image and reputation, so to speak, where I was saying, hey, this is what I did in the community. Because, you know, I was told that I, I wasn't the type of pharmacist he wanted managing his pharmacy. So I was like, OK, well, I did this in the community. I did that. I, you know, created these scholarships. I've been doing comedy and then Z Dog saw it and then we did that and then that had like five hundred thousand views. Wow. And then so many people spoke out on my behalf. It was crazy. I had like forty five different like Facebook posts of people who that I worked with took out their time to just write these long posts. And it was like, Hey, uh, I'm so and so head of this university, I saw your Z Dog thing or hi, oh, the head of Medicaid saw this video, wants to talk to you, or hey, so and so at this company. So it was kinda weird because in retail, you do so much, especially as a pharmacy manager, you don't get credit for it, and you almost feel like nobody really wants you. And then to be in a position where it's like people are reaching out to you to want to hire you, especially when so many pharmacists are struggling looking for jobs, it was kind of uh, it was a little shocking. Maurice, why do you think they wanted to hire you is it because of something you said in the z-dog interview or was it just because they got a chance to know you and they said he sounds and looks like a good guy to have on our team because we've gotten to know him over this last hour well i think a lot of a lot of people in pharmacy are trying to find other ways where pharmacists can show their worth and get paid because the current retail pharmacy business model is clearly not working. And so with me doing the health initiative that I was working on with the black barbershop, oh. uh, working with the hospital to do that. You talked about that in the interview. Right. Gotcha. And so that really, you know, the, the fact that I had, I did a residency, you know, depending on where some places that were like, uh, you know, institutions like, okay, well, he's working on health initiatives. Uh, and I've talked about different ways of trying to get, you know, pharmacists, different services we could provide to, to be able to bill for. And he did a residency. So, you know, he can help us with these new services and he can also take on students. And they just kind of saw what I brought to the table. You kind of, you know, in retail, you, you kind of can do a lot, but you're kind of handcuffed, so to speak. So that's pretty much why a lot of people. And then even with a lot of positions, they're like, your name has come up before. When we had positions in the, in, in the past, but then when this all happened, it kind of like, well, if his name keeps popping up, maybe we should at least interview him and talk to him. All right, so what's the real reason that Walgreens got rid of you? I mean, your mind's got to be saying there's something more to this. Due to ongoing like um, communications between my representative and theirs, I can't speak any further on that, but I don't believe that I was fired for comedy and... Huh. Um, I could just I can only leave it at that for at the moment. The comedy was an excuse because they Correct. knew it all already. They wanted to get rid of me, but they couldn't fire me for performance because, like I said, I met all metrics. Uh, they couldn't fire me for being late. So I'm always early. I stay late. 
I mean, they went all, I mean, if you think of all the things, you know, there's a lot of pharmacists on my page or that email me and say, hey, uh, I think I was unjustly fired because I make $65 an hour and they just came up with this excuse about this STARS event from five months ago. Or, you know, most people, when they're fired from retail, feel like the reason that they were given was not the true reason why they were fired. And, and so it's just one of those things that they had really nothing. I, I didn't make so many mistakes or that probably would have been the first thing. Like, hey, you make too many mistakes. We fire you. So they just went kind of like all the way down to like, okay, well, I'll just say it's the comedy. I know like at least in Michigan and I I think more places that you're on an at-will employment and the employer or the employee can leave or fire you for whatever the reason. However, I think it's usually in the best interest of the employer to say a reason because if you don't say a reason, you leave it open for the former employee to say, well, you fired me for age discrimination or you fired me for gender discrimination or race discrimination. So if they can come out and give you a reason, even though it's probably full of baloney, it probably lets the employee know, well, they came up with something and I can't really disprove it. And part of it too was, was that even when my representation brought up, when, when you list things that are listed as gross misconduct, what I did was not gross misconduct. And per company policy, based off of what I did, what should have happened at least should have been a final written warning. There's no just straight, you're fired. Not for that type of you know behavior. You know, with the company policy, you can... You can fail a drug test and still go to rehab <laughs> and, keep, yeah. and, keep, and keep your job. Much less a bad joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or you know, there's, you know, I gave other examples where so and so was accused of, you know, inappropriate conduct towards a female employee, and they were just transferred from one store. You know, they weren't even fired; they were just transferred. Okay, don't work with that person. So you're telling me I can't get a warning? Yeah, I'm just like, bye. Go take your license. No, so <laughs> when you say representation, did you try to fight this at all? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm currently fighting it now. Oh, you are. So yes. you're still trying to fight it and get to the bottom of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people who reach out to me is like, "Hey, I feel like I was unjustly fired. They said that I did this, but I don't think so." And I was like, "Well, okay. Well, did you fight it? No." I was like, "Well, why not?" And they're like, "Well, I don't know." Nobody gives you a good reason. I was like, well, everybody complains about these unjust firing, but then nobody even wants to stand up for themselves. I was like, <laughs> they probably say this unjust firing, and then you say, you didn't fight it. Why not? Well, there might have been a, there might be a, a couple things I'm not telling you about. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, that's, I mean, you know, it could be like to what you're saying, they're leaving part of it out to make them seem like the complete victim. Or if they were unjustly fired, that's how companies get away with stuff because they know people just move on. Yeah, sure. They just move on. And I always, I always told people like growing up in Chicago, it's one of those things where it's a rough area where it's like as a kid, you would get picked on. And then you keep getting picked on until you fought back. And, you know, and it's kind of like that's kind of just been instilled with me when somebody does something like that. You just fight back or they're just going to keep doing it. So it's, you know, that's just how I kind of 
took it, especially after you put it in seven years and you were so close to being promoted. And that was how, you know, I always said from the beginning, like, you know, it was always my goal. That's why I always took on different stores because when they give you a different store, you know, the store sucks and you got to fix it and hire new people. And I only did that because I wanted to work corporate and it was more of a kind of kick in the gut when, you know, just a week before corporate was talking to me about working, taking a position in Deerfield. For a manager of retail ops, so would that have been a desk job? Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming so because it would have been at the Deerfield headquarters. So yeah, when you talk about the rough area you grew up and getting bullied or picked on, is that where any of your comedy came from? To deal with any of that, to maybe try to make a bully laugh instead of punch you in the nose or something? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that just kind of gives you like that. Really, just gives you like thick skin, especially like working um retail but usually but where it all really came from to be able to handle retail was like working in the rough areas because like now when i don't work in like the rough areas of chicago um people are like oh you dealt with that 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 karen everybody talks about that crazy lady (laughs) i was like well when you work on the west side of chicago you work with the Antoine that may actually kill you and yeah. threaten your life. So, <laughs> yeah. so dealing with the Karen is not so bad. It's like, okay, but you know, Karen's not going to threaten to beat you up after work. So it's like one of those things where it's like, it just, you know, I just blow things off and it, it just kind of amazes my coworkers. You're like, tell me if they pull a gun or jump the counter. But besides <laughs> that, they're just peeping up. I had a Karen last week and she actually goes to my church. She's always been a difficult customer, but she kind of quizzed me why I wasn't wearing a mask. And I said, well, our frontline cash register people are wearing them and so on. And I quoted some things from our governor's emergency declaration on why I didn't think I had to wear one. And boy, she dropped the biggest (laughs) F-bomb on her way out of the store, you know, and it's like, it was crazy. And I even heard it through that quadruple air mask she had on you know yeah so are you able to use this dismissal from your former employee in your show i mean it kind of just depends on how everything shapes out but you know as of right now i can talk about it and do whatever i want and yeah they can't fire you (laughs) (laughs) they can't can't fire you twice so right yeah just uh to be able to talk about it but it's kind of like one of those things like you know my fans kind of already know the story thanks to like z-dog and the youtube channel like almost everybody knows so it's uh you know writing joke it's been kind of hard because usually i could write a joke and then go to open mic and fix it but i work on it or tweak it but uh, like now there's no comedy club so it's right even if i have jokes about it i can't like work it out to see if it's funny because nothing's ever perfect the first time you right write a joke down yeah maurice with your joke so Let's say that you're doing a, I don't know, let's say you're doing a 15-minute set. And I had heard at one point that about almost every seven seconds, you want to kind of get people chuckling a little bit. That's a hell of a lot of jokes, even for 15 minutes. How often do you throw in new material, like 5% new material, and then if it doesn't hit, it's okay because you've got 95% solid? Or how do you get that feedback? And I, I know you said right now it's tough because you don't have the open mics to try it out on. But how much new stuff do you throw in when you're not sure of it? It just kind of depends. If I'm at a new club, let's say like a 
comedy club in Tennessee say, hey, we want you to do 15 minutes. I won't try out any new jokes because that's like an audition for me. So I'll do a solid 15 where I know every joke hits. If it's a club where I, I keep performing at, gotcha. I'll always try out a new joke and then always do a joke that I know is going to hit right after that. <laughs> so if it, yeah. if it, if it, if it doesn't um, hit, then it's okay. And then I, in the beginning, I'll do little, little short, quick jokes. Um, boom, 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 just to get them laughing. And then I'll go into some of my longer ones where they're not like every seven seconds because now I have their attention. But if you start out with a long joke and you don't have their attention, they're, you know, that's when you get those uh, hecklers and people yeah. not paying attention. So. so you'll hit with some, you'll hit maybe every seven seconds right away to get them laughing. And then you might go into a longer story joke or something. Mm. That's fascinating. It's quite a, it's an art, but it's quite a science too. Mm. Do you write your stuff down? Do, is that, when, when you're thinking of a joke, are you writing it down? I know some comedians do and some don't. Yeah, I write them down. I put them on my phone. Like, I remember one time I wrote these jokes about, like, things that happened in the pharmacy one time. Like, it was probably, like, a month ago. I was writing these jokes down on a prescription bag. I took a bag. I was like, oh, this incident was funny because uh, this happened. So I wrote it down, wrote it down. And we got so busy because I'm on only pharmacist one tech. I accidentally used that bag on the patient's for- <laughs> And the lady brought it back. Like, this has these words, like, dumbass customer. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, let me, let me get that bag. <laughs> so now I put it in my phone. <laughs> it's, it's so funny you mention that because my dad, God rest his soul, but he would always take bags out and draw on them and stuff. And then he'd throw them back in and we'd use them later. And today was like the first time in probably – five years that I, I drew a little insulin something on a bag for someone, you know, and, and, uh, I hadn't done that in a long time. So it's funny you brought up about, <laughs> about the bag, but yeah, she comes back with like, what'd you, what'd you write on this for? No, it wasn't you. It wasn't you. It was the uh, customer before. You yeah. Know. Yeah. No, I just put them in my phone, just try to remind myself when right. things happen and yeah. just so you don't forget. At this time in your life, how many nights a month would you like to do comedy? Probably every other weekend. Traveling for it? Uh, I wouldn't mind traveling for it. It just kind of just depends. Like some comedy clubs, like I know there was a comedy club in Michigan. I was like, hey, will you come to Michigan uh, and do a show? No hotel, 100 bucks. I was like, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> no hotel, meaning they're not going to put you up. <laughs> well, yeah, I have to pay for it. I was like, I'll just go to work for two hours or something yeah, exactly. like that and make that up. But other places have been willing to pay for my travel and everything else and so it kind of just depends on that but now you know with the new job that i have uh coming up that i'll have the schedule where i could do it every other weekend retail it made it hard because you work every other weekend and you're doing trying to do shows every other weekend like you have no weekends off so yeah it's funny when you mentioned that when you finally moved away, you know, three or four hours away, that's when they wanted you back. But I'm in this – well, I was in this service club. It was 30 men and women, and and every week we'd have a speaker, and one of the guys was telling me that in a sister club that he was in before they joined ours, he said that one week out of a month – they always invited somebody from more than a hundred miles away. 
So in other words, three out of the four weeks, it was Bob from down on the corner, you know, or or Sally who runs the local, you know, YWCA or something like that. But once a month, they always got someone from 100 miles away, because if you're 100 miles away, there must be something really special about you. So when you finally <laughs> moved, you know, three hours away, then you were a star that came back from three hours away, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Well, like, the way the comedy scene works is kind of like you have the, like, Chicago is not like New York or L.A. It's Chicago's kind of like, that's where you go to develop your talents. And then you go to L.A. or New York. And then that's where how a lot of people kind of take off from there. But it's kind of like at the time that I left, uh, a lot of people that I knew they were performing regularly had to either move to New York to try to take their career to the next level or move to L.A. So it was kind of like what was still in Chicago, I was kind of the best out there. So that's when they asked me. Well, Chicago was always like Second City and all that improv stuff and all that, right? And that's where people, you know, got their chops. Yeah, they got Second City. I took classes there. It was funny, like Comedy 101. The guy was like, wow, you shouldn't even be in 101. You should be in like 103. But, you know, that's what, again... You know, that could have opened up doors if I could have kept doing it because they kind of make you go through like 101, 102, 103. And once you go higher, then they kind of try to help take your career off. But it's like, again, with the pharmacy work schedule, it's impossible to make a 445 Wednesday uh, (laughs) comedy 102 class every Wednesday. So do you think you're getting better? Uh, Well, I'm probably getting worse since the pandemic, but (laughs) I, I but. But at least I got a lot of jokes that I'm pretty sure, you know, that's nice about having my fan page that even though I don't have the stage time, I still can. Yeah. I'll put a joke on there and I'll say like 483 people gave it a heart. So I was like, I know it's it's a funny joke and there's something there. Just got to tweak it, you know. You think in general that your skills get better and thus the audience gets a funnier show in general, would you keep getting better? And what would get better? Your ability to know a good joke when you see one, when you think of one? Because you're probably a better comic at 10 years than you were at three years, right? Mm-hmm. What was different between three years and 10 years and then between 10 years and let's say seven years from now? And I'm not talking just like more jokes, but I imagine you're skilled better. You've learned to hone something, right? It's just like how you deliver a joke is probably what changed. Like there was certain jokes where I would tell it and I would get a punchline out of it, but I was leaving a lot on the table. Like it could be the you know, the crowd could be laughing louder. I could get more out of a joke. I could take a joke that was thirty seconds and really probably could make it into something that was three minutes, you know. Like, even some jokes I would, you know, there's one joke where I added an extra 15 seconds where it's like I tell the joke and then the audience is laughing and it's such a big point. Like, I was always rushing to the next joke. So then over time, I just learned, I let the audience, you know, I have a drink over there and I go and grab the drink so they can keep laughing. So to them, you know, for me, it's like I'm going to let them get the laugh out because then I'm trying to over talk my joke and they don't hear it because people are still laughing. And then when they finally calm down, I go, man, that was a good-ass joke. <laughs> and then they start laughing again. Then I go into it. So, so it's little things like that are just about the pace. People like my pace because I kind of just tell this. You know, in the, my early years, I was more concerned with being funny. In my later years, I was just more concerned with being interesting. Because even though people might not be laughing, they were like, I love 
what you were saying because I was just interested. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I would measure if people like me by laughter, but it's not so much laughter. Of course, my shows have a lot of laughter, but sometimes people are just listening to my stories or about like how long I've been working in pharmacy and the long days, like it just captivates them. And I think, you know, when you go to a comedy club, you can be entertained and not just be laughing, you know, you can be interested in what I'm saying. So I try to incorporate both of, both of those things. And that's kind of, you know, how my comedy has changed from, you know, year three to year seven to year 10. It's interesting that you brought up that because when I was trying to, define my podcast or a mission for my podcast, I thought a lot about it. And the words I came up with was interesting and entertaining. And it's not really my right because I'm not a comic. I don't label myself as funny. That's for someone else to decide. I can say entertaining. And and that's a wide range of what entertaining means. For some people, it might be laughing. For some people, it might be reminiscing or whatever. And then I say it's um, interesting. And I chose that carefully because the other things I didn't want to say is that I was educational or that I was going to improve your life beyond my show or whatever. It's like I was I was very tight in what I wanted to do. And then the way that I gauge who I want to talk to is just who would I want to pick up and, and drive up to northern Michigan with? What kind of conversation would we have in the car driving up there? And I said, that's my goal. It's not to it's not to do anything else but that. So it took a bit to get there, but long story short is if people think they're going to learn something from me, they got the wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> my dad is always like, why don't you do more things like CE credits? I was like, that's just not my thing. I'm not the uh, person who does the CE credit. My job is to make people laugh. And, you know, that's just, I'll stick to that. <laughs> that's got to be a hell of a feeling being up there because the quieter people are, they're listening. They're really listening. Because like you said, the opposite of that is heckling. So they're really listening. And then to hit them with a, a joke, you know, is going to hit. Yeah, especially especially when you've seen comics go up there where one joke doesn't hit. And I've seen them perform. But the fact that that one joke doesn't hit, it kind of throws off their whole routine and they get flustered and then they just walked off stage because you have all those people just staring at you and it's you know everybody you know there's a lot of people i talk to that are hilarious and you know but it's it's being able to 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 tell a story communicate that to three four hundred people is what separates you know the average person from to, from a comic there's certain comics that you get them off stage and they're not even going to crack a smile and they'll never make you smile. There's other guys that are kind of funny all the time. Farley, you know, and David Spade, I think is kind of funny in real life, but it it goes across the gamut. But yeah, there's a big difference between cracking little jokes and getting up there and being blinded by the light and under all the pressure to do that and to risk hitting a bad one, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So you got to be pretty confident now when you're up there. I mean, you know, a laugh is coming, right? Do you have any times where for some reason it was like a chain reaction of not laughing? Have you done that where you've got up there and a joke that always hits before for some reason didn't hit that night sometimes it just depends on the audience too that's what makes comedy sort of difficult like when i perform at the laugh factor there's some comics that i know will do well but then sometimes like 
you know, I'll perform at other places. Like, they'll do jokes in Chicago, right? And they're talking about Trump and kind of making fun of Christianity and stuff like that. And people laugh. And then we'll go do some shows in Michigan where where you don't talk about their Christianity. And then they still try the jokes. And it's just like, yeah. And and they keep going because they have nothing else. Where I I love about pharmacy, it's neutral. It's not, you know, pharmacy doesn't offend anybody. So I don't, it doesn't really matter what type of audience I have, luckily that most people will laugh and get it. You know, usually people who are older or are on medicine, the people who work in the pharmacy field laugh a little bit more, especially like, especially once they start to get 25 and up, I would say they probably laugh more. The younger crowd, they still laugh, but I don't think it really hits to them because they don't deal with the pharmacy as much or especially like some of the 18 year olds, they probably don't even know what an insurance card is. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. But I never have it where it's just that dull silence. So, to me, it might not be as loud as a laugh, but I still get a laugh. Do you remember Johnny Carson? Mm-hmm. Johnny, he was the king of throwing out some that his writers wrote for him those days where it bombed completely. And he was the best at recovering from those. You know, I remember sometimes he would pull the mic down and tap on it and say, is this on? You know, that kind <laughs> of stuff. He was good at that. You got to have that just set up. Like, I remember one time I told a joke and like the people of the left laughed and the people on the right didn't. So I said, can the people on the left explain it to everybody on the right, you you know? You kind of have a few things set up for that, right? Yeah. You're ready for it. Mm -hmm. So, Maurice, what would be really cool for you as a comic? I guess what would be really cool for me if there was like, let's say NBC came out with a TV show called The Pharmacy and I was like a writer on it. You know, I told my experience and I got paid to to write or even, you know, to, you know, that'd be the minimum, you know, I guess to be on the show would be pretty cool. But I'm one of those people, I guess it may sound kind of weird because I'm always on stage and have the channel, but I really don't like the limelight, you know, I'm kind of like to be more behind the scenes. So like if there was something where I could write for a pharmacy show and kind of get the stuff on my YouTube channel and my jokes on the big screen to do that, because I feel like people try to do so much to get changed, but it's like, I don't think retail pharmacy or pharmacy in general is going to change until like patients start speaking up or, you know, more and more people get hurt because pharmacies are understand. But if there was a TV show where you could talk about it, it'd be more, it's easier to get the message out. And that's kind of my goal is to somehow if there was a TV show come out to be able to get that out that way. Cause it just seems like, you know, I watch all these YouTube channels where like, you know, this guy that was a pharmacist and became a senator, he's over there preaching about PBM reform. And it, it seems like anybody who can just listen to the basic knowledge that you buy a drug for this price and you're getting reimbursed less than what you pay, that's just bad business. But nothing changes. Like, I Google things like auto refills being kind of a insurance fraud. And then yeah. articles will pop off in 2014, 2013. I'm like, so these aren't new issues that I'm bringing to light. People have known about this for seven years. So that's kind of like where I'm at. I'm like, okay, well, what's a way to get changed? Because, like, I, you know, I'm trying to bring awareness to things that are going on. But now the more I see it, like, these have been news topics and news stories since, like, 2014, 2013. You know, every year there's a new story. But it seems to be getting worse with every <laughs> every breaking story. So it's like, how else can you get the information out there to make a difference? And it just seems like, you know, doing it that way, a TV show where millions of people are watching that, you know, people can kind of feel sorry for the main character that's a pharmacist and then more people would speak out like hey 
I am paying more for my prescription. Hey, I did get the wrong pills. Maybe it's because my pharmacist was understaffed. And so that would be my dream to be able to make a change uh, in retail pharmacy while doing what I love. There's some neat things now, you know, with the internet and well, of course, you'd rather be off the internet right now <laughs> and, and live, but podcasts and the YouTube videos and things like that. And for the last 30 years, we've depended more on just news articles with short clips of people telling why they might be upset or something. But I think maybe some of these new longer versions with podcasts, funnier versions with shows, you know, hit to the point things with YouTube, you know, maybe that'll shake things up a bit, hopefully. All right. So you go to Hollywood and I'm going to give you three options. And I think I know the first one that you would strictly be a comic actor. I don't think that's your favorite one. But if you could write the jokes for the show or write the jokes and be on the show, which one would you prefer? Um, if I'm not looking at pay. <laughs> yeah, let's say you're not looking at pay. I probably would just like to write the jokes because I feel like when you're famous and people know who you are, Anybody in the limelight, their life just goes to shambles. <laughs> and it's just like, um, I remember one time there was a local pharmacy and they were like, hey, can't, you know, every year we have a um, kind of a, a pharmacy, we have a, a party once a year. It'd be really cool if you did some comedy. A lot of the technicians like you. So I was like, okay. So I go there and then I walk in. And like one of the technicians, was like, oh my god, it's the YouTube guy. She's like shaking, you know. It was kind of an awesome feeling, but it was also kind of creepy too, because it was just like just to see this person's reaction. They're like, oh my god, you're real, and it's like even now I get like hundreds of emails, and you know, one guy called me three weeks ago from Alabama. It was just like he's so stressed out at work, and he wanted my advice that like he doesn't know what he's gonna do to himself, so he has his mom driving to and from work. Well, because he just feels so, you know, so stressed out in the retail setting. And he's like, it's just amazing that you're a real person. You actually answered the phone and stuff like that. So it's like people expect a lot from, you know what I'm saying? When you're in the line, like they expect a lot and it means a lot to people. And you can't just blow people off. Like not that I blow people off, but it's like I'm always trying to answer emails. But eventually you'd have to at a certain level. I think it's a lot more work than what people thought. And I only get a small taste of it. And you get satisfaction out of the joke writing then. Yeah. Knowing that a joke that I wrote hit on national TV. I mean, other things will come from that too. Like I wouldn't mind, you know, if I had a smaller role on it, but like the main character that's always got to be on TV and stuff like that is just not really my goal. But I mean, if it happens, I'll take it. But <laughs> I'm trying to get a feeling of, of comedy as a career. Oh, well, comedy as a career is hard because people don't, really pay that well unless you're like the big name comics so it, it kind of have to to make a living you kind of have to be doing a, a headlining gig every weekend you can't take a weekend off that's going to take a break almost to get the headline and then you got to do that every weekend mm -hmm. so it's probably like you know depending on who you are if you're like a basic headliner you're probably getting like for a weekend maybe like 2500 gotcha you know and so um you know, probably comic a good working comic could make sixty to a hundred thousand a year, but you literally have to every weekend you're working and traveling, and so um, you're not working really Monday through Wednesday. But there's some clubs I've been to where you 
the headliner, he does the Thursday show, the Friday show, the Saturday show. Usually there's no Sunday show. So, you know, Sunday you're either going home or going to the next place. So I know there's been months where I would do shows back to back to back. And I remember for like three weeks, I was like, this is kind of lonely because I remember I was in the Cleveland Festival, so I was there for a while. So I'm just in a hotel for three days with nothing to do. And then you go someplace else. I had to go to Michigan the next weekend. And, like, one or two days, you're just sitting there. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of lonely. I remember when I started as a pharmacist, I told my dad, because my dad was a pharmacist, and so I came to work with him. And one time I got the idea. I said, I'm going to go visit all these doctor's offices, you know, and bring them stuff and kind of be a sales guy like that. And I always considered the pharmacy like a a trap for me. Like, I got to get out of here, you know, and do something. I'm stuck here with all the cash registers and all that stuff. I went out for about three hours and I was so lonely. I needed to come back, <laughs> you know, just being on the road, like without the comfort. Now I call them comfort. But back then I felt like I was kind of trapped in it. What you need to do is keep pumping, keep the YouTube, keep that going. There's no such thing as pure luck. I mean, luck happens, they say, to people that work their ass off or something mm. like that. But it sounds like you need to you, – you keep plugging. And then to do that full-time, you'd have to have that level jump up somehow. Mm -hmm. Somehow you'd have to get a connection or something, right? One, it would probably have to, like I said – if you could be a writer on a TV show, that would open up all the other comedy gigs. So while you're writing, you could still write and do comedy. So like those days where you're off, not on a stage, you could be writing and send that to the shows. And that way you're, you know, you're writing. It was a friend of mine before COVID hit. He was supposed to be doing a TV show in New York where they were paying him to be on a show like 5000 a week. And that got canceled. But I mean... Right there, he was making $20,000 for the month. To write or to be on it? To, to write and be on. So he was doing both for a show in New York. So it's like, it kind of just depends on the show. You know, if he did that for 20000 and another, also kind of depends on your lifestyle and the way that pharmacies go and people are making less and less. You might as well, might as well just be a full-time comic. We're struggling at our pharmacy, just like almost every pharmacy is. And part of me is almost glad about that because someday maybe it's so tough where I've got to take my last 10 years in the workforce and really be forced to do something or at least not see the golden handcuffs as much. But yeah, you've got, I think, a lot of cool things happening now with pharmacists because that wage isn't there. And so everything doesn't look so small compared to it. Things are starting to look almost compatible, you know, doing something else. Yeah, that's what I was telling people, you know, like when I did that one video where a bunch of people, I, I believe it was like Walgreens and like Rhode Island, Massachusetts, they were getting laid off and they were hiring new breads at forty one fifty an hour. So somebody, you know, that lived in the Boston area is like, do you recommend I do this? And I was like, well, somebody commented that they learned to become a diesel mechanic and make $42 an hour and had no student loan debt. Like, I don't, I mean, I guess it would just depend on your your love of pharmacy, you could do something else and not have the student loan debt. If even at that rate, if you didn't have student loan debt but love pharmacy, I would still say do it, but maybe not retail setting where you're working like twelve hours a a day and 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 no break. So it just kind of just depends on the market. But it looks like everything is just going down. So it's like might as well try to do 
do something else. And a lot of pharmacists don't realize that their skill sets translate to other things because they don't look outside the box. Because um, when I was looking for a job, I, I did things that weren't even pharmacy related. And people, I was surprised about the number of people who actually reached out to me. Like one of them was like being a project manager for like a big um, pharmacy company. And they wanted healthcare experience, management experience, but you also needed a PMP certificate, which I did not have. So they were just wondering how, you know, is that something that I'd be willing to get? But that paid like $200,000 a year. Really? And it was like, you know, it made me think like, okay, like there's other things I can do because these skill sets clearly translate to other fields. If you're forced to make some of those choices, like like you were with <laughs> those terrible things you did at you know, Walgreens, <laughs> you know, sometimes that's a blessing in disguise, I guess. Yeah, people always say, why don't you do comedy? Yeah, every time I do a show, you should quit pharmacy. That was hilarious. Do comedy full time. And it's like, you know, once I lost my job, I was going to do comedy full time. Like, you know, I'm going to just do this full time for like three to six months, see what happens. But then COVID hit, so I guess it wasn't meant to be. But uh, you know, that sort of situation where I was forced out and I was willing to take that risk, but it wasn't until that happened. I wish I was more open to that because every time in life I've been forced to do something usually ends up better than it would have been if I would have been in the other situation. But I don't know. I still got a handful of kids at home, so <laughs> maybe I'll be more risky when, you know, when it's me and my wife or something, you know, and I can handle some of that. Do you have any advice, Maurice, for someone just graduating now in the midst of COVID, in the midst of decreased salaries and things like that? I always say, like, most pharmacists, they just depend on pharmacy, you know. I had a barber academy, and the school ended up having to close because of COVID. But I think more pharmacists, if you can find another business or a hobby or passion that you can do, even if it means only working 32 hours a week, most places aren't doing 40 hours anyway. That way you're not so reliant on pharmacy as your primary income. So that's why pharmacists don't want to speak up. That's why they don't want to protest that because all their money is solely from pharmacy. But if more pharmacists were entrepreneurs or had other um, sources of income, if they wanted to strike, it wouldn't be so bad where they had to cave in because they didn't have money coming in. So I always tell people just, you know, find something else that you like and try to have more than just one um, source of income coming in besides pharmacy because it's not, you know, what it used to be. What academy did you say? I had a, a barber academy. I thought you said that. What do you mean by that? I helped open up and I partnered with other organizations where felons could learn the um, trade of barbering for free. Give them a fresh start on life because a lot of times they, they, you know, they get relieved, but then, you know, the, they have no credit. They have the background. It's hard to get jobs. Whereas, like, if you're a barber, you can still make money kind of on your own kind of supplement things and that's what a lot of people who get out of prison want to do is is cut hair at least where i'm at so um it was a pretty good program a lot of people who said you know it changed their life around because when they get out a lot of times a lot of them will go into you know jail for drug drug offenses so this way they can make an honest living so to speak and there's other organizations that were assisting and paying for their tuition so they didn't have to pay out of pocket. Were you a part of that somehow? Yeah, so I helped open it up. Um, I helped make the connections with the uh, organizations in the community. And that's where the health initiative kind of started, where I partnered, I partnered with SIU. It's like, hey, people come in here. 
We'll check their blood pressure, and they'll say, okay, we don't care what type of health insurance they have. We'll take them. Because um, a lot of people will say, like, well, I had one insurance, lost my job, and I got, you know, state insurance, and that doctor wouldn't take the state insurance, and then I got another doctor, or I never found another doctor. So uh, it was kind of something where people would come in. You know, a lot of times people don't go to the doctor regularly, so, but they always get their hair cut, you know, every two weeks or months. So it was a, a, a health initiative that the um, hospital, the School of Medicine was was eager to uh, help out because they were going to have medical students come do maybe like physicals and stuff like that. But the whole COVID thing hit. So we're just trying to figure out other ways to make a difference. But um, that's kind of what I was doing. Yeah. So your advice to people coming out of school would not only be being open to something, but would you actually say try to have another income coming in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so have another source of income because you 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 never know when they just may just say, hey, okay, we can't offer you thirty two anymore. You can only get twenty four hours, or yeah, and then you're just kind of screwed because people are looking for other pharmacy things, and it's like, okay, well, it's too saturated. So you need to try to figure out something else. If you had to, it's easier to increase an income from a small income doing whatever else than it is to say, now I got to start something, right? You might as well start it while you're working your 32 or 38 or hours or whatever as a pharmacist. Yeah. Cause there's some people who are just too far in. You can't tell them to just not be a pharmacist. So when they're starting off, I say, even if that means, you know, working 32 or even 24 hours a week, if you can, uh, you know, if you can manage it, like my dad, when he ended up getting laid off and then he had to get a kidney transfer plant and couldn't work and he only gets his little fixed income, but he started his own little Amazon business. So he goes to Goodwill and other places and buy like those old like CD, um, you know, those old Walkmans that had like a 35 second skip protection. Well, those things are valuable. <laughs> he sells those things like hotcakes or old, old dismantle or old cameras, things that I would just think is junk. Like, he'll pay 50 cents for it, but then he'll sell it on Amazon for 35 bucks. So, you keep doing that and doing that. Like, the, my mom has a fit because the basement is just full of just <laughs> Starbucks <laughs> coffee mugs, Minnie Mouse stuff. And she's like, this shit is crazy. <laughs> Give it out. And he's like, no, it's valuable. <laughs> he's like, shut up. That's your retirement. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> people buy, you know, people pay good money for those Starbucks coffee mugs for whatever reason. But, you know, you got to know what you're looking for. But, that, I mean, that's just an example. And to him, it's not stressful. You know, you work on your own time. You're going looking out. And so. But even something like that, even if you're bringing in, you know, let's say, let's say you make, you know, a hundred bucks a month or something, at least you're, you're moving in a direction of not just pharmacy and so. Correct. Huh. That's good advice. Yeah. Because I mean, (laughs) I don't know if this is funny or sad, but when I had a job interview at Walmart, the guy was like, well, you know, I have 78 applicants. I chose to interview eight people. I chose you because of your extensive management experience and your residency. But he's like, of this other 70, 60 of the people whose resumes that I have have been graduated for two years and have no working experience, so they couldn't get a job. Whoa. So it's like, there's people, you know, one guy did a podcast with, with in order to get a pharmacist job, he worked as a tech. For like a year. Really? Just driving. He drove 45 minutes every day to be a tech and got paid as a tech. 
until something opened up. You got to keep moving. This podcast, I think I've always enjoyed the thought of it, but most of it came from being a little frightened of where my pharmacy was going at home. I haven't monetized it, but I've probably done something even more valuable. I've talked to 70-some leaders like you that I can open things up with. I get to know people, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm, Good stuff. Well, Maurice, thanks so much for being on the show. No, thanks for having me. It's a... It's a pleasure. Like all these different podcasts, I didn't realize how big um, podcasting has become. And I've actually, you know, to me, it's more interesting. Other outside of pharmacy, I look at just like Spotify and Joe Rogan and yeah. kind of the business things of, of podcasting. It's kind of interesting to see where everything is going. I don't understand why pharmacists can't do this and get paid, you know, for these type of consultations, like these video ones. It's almost just like somebody being in front of you so i mean obviously that would would need provider status but i think you know with a lot of telemedicine in the future uh hopefully uh this podcasting and telemedicine you know we'll see more pharmacists doing podcasting and maybe getting uh, reimbursed for some of our services. Yeah, if you can pull the positive out of things, I, one thing this COVID has certainly done is it jump-started the, um, the, the video to video, which never seemed to have caught on as much as I thought it would. I, I've told this story before, but when I was like seven years old, I went to Disney World. And I was walking through one of the, I think, General Electric, like, Cities of Tomorrow or something where they play those corny songs over and over and over again. And I remember seeing, like, this robotic person, but talking on the screen to someone like we're doing now. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling myself that that right there is my definition of the future. When you can talk to someone on the phone and be looking at them face to face. Well, that's been around now for 10, 15 years. Only really COVID has seemed to have really brought that out of its uh, little bit of hibernation there. So yeah. All right, Maurice, I'll be watching for you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I want to see your name scrolling through on some credits while I'm sitting there watching the boob tube some night. <laughs> I was actually going to do like a, um, like a pharmacy family feud. I guess I'd have been Steve Harvey, like uh, <laughs> name top five reasons why patients moved in North going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they never lose their blood pressure medicine. <laughs> no, no, it was funny. We had, uh, uh, I remember one time, I think it was a year ago, it was like a recall on uh, Xanax, uh, the generic. And I was like, it's funny because not, not one person has called me about this day of recall, but when they blood pressure pill, everything else is recalled. They're freaking out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, not one person. Xanax is recalled. They don't care if it, you know, you causes cancer or what. They're still taking it. And it's only the Xanax that must have a magnet inside of it because those seem to find the drain yeah. a lot more than any other medicine does. Yeah, <laughs> and then when people bring me their bottles, like when they bring me their Losartan bottles, always like powder dust in there. Like the yeah. Narco bottle looks just as clean as when I, when I gave it. My dad used to tell me, yeah, I heard from Mrs. Smith when we shorted her three, but she never told you last month when I put three extra ones in there. She never called. I think he fibbed a little bit, but all right, Maurice, you take care. All right, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.